0: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're debating the centenary of the state coming into existence on the 6th of December 1922. What happened 100 years ago and what did it mean? You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we brought you the story of Rome's richest man who died humiliated in the desert after going in search of military glory and discussed the 1926 census and the plans to have it digitized. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts On Friday the 2nd and Saturday the 3rd of December UCD will host a national conference as part of the Decade of Centenaries programme On Friday the 2nd of December and Saturday the 3rd of December UCD will host a national conference as part of the Decade of Centenaries programme to mark the 100th anniversary of the new Irish state coming into effect on the 6th of December 1922 This major two conference will explore the process of state formation amid an ongoing civil war and uncertainty over the future of the border with Northern Ireland. Leading academics will also discuss the evolution of the institutions of the state since 1922 and the challenges that state, society and citizenry Faced a century ago. And so, to discuss what happened in December 1922, this key event in the history of Irish independence and statehood, I'm delighted to welcome a panel of experts from the conference. Dr. Conor Mulva lectures in the School of History at UCD with special responsibility for the Decade of Centenaries and is one of the organisers of the conference. His books include The Irish Parliamentary Party at Westminster, and he's about to bring out an edited collection, or a co edited collection of essays on Owen McNeil. Dr. Mary McAuliffe is Director of General. Studies at UCD, and her books include a biography of Margaret Skinner, and she's working on a new book on gendered and sexual violence during the Irish War of Independence and Civil War. Dr. Thomas Moore lectures in the UCD Sutherland School of Law and is the author of *Guardian of the Treaty*, *The Privy Council Appeal and Irish Sovereignty*, and he's a vice president of the Irish Legal History Society. Well, you're all very welcome, and Connor. Given that it is your conference, I might start with you and maybe the significance of the sixth of December, nineteen twenty-two, because. In a way, I don't think people understand that that's when the state formally came into operation because it kind of had been running things uh, for a while. So
1: so why does that date matter? This is the important thing about this date, Patrick. There isn't the nice anniversarial symmetry of the 1916 rising or the end of the First World War here. There's not a single day in which a whole bunch of things happen. 1922 is a process of state formation in Ireland. And in order to do that, really what we have is, first of all, the ratification of the treaty back in January of 1922, then the coming into being of this transitional Authority, the provisional government um, and the provisional government really runs the show up until this date and this is laid out by Article 17 of the treaty that signed on the 6th of December 1921 which says that for a year after the date of the signing of this instrument there will be a provisional government in charge of Ireland after which point their authority lapses, and therefore the Irish Free State must come into being. So there's two things that really happen on the sixth of December. One of which is a, a legal formality: the, the transition from the provisional government, uh, which had been under Michael Collins, and then after Collins's death, uh, is run by W. T. Cosgrave. So that becomes the Irish Free State, and Cosgrave formally becomes the president of the Executive Council for the first time. But the second, and I think probably the more significant thing, is that the Constitution comes into force. So again, that Constitution has a story that stretches the year of 1922. The, the Constitutional Committee is convened by Michael Collins but it's de facto chaired by an individual called Daryl Figgis very interesting figure within the Irish Revolution and they produce their drafts during the first half of 1922 then the Constituent Assembly is elected um, out of the 1922 general election so that's one of its functions is to ratify this constitution and then finally that constitution comes into being on the 6th of December 1922. So while we now look back on the 1922 constitution as maybe a a legislative artefact because it doesn't have any force in law anymore. It's uh, superseded by the 1937 constitution. When this was passed, this was the law of the land and was seen to be the permanent Grundgesetz to take that German term you know the the basic law of the state that would run permanently and off which all other laws would be based and we see this in Daryl Figgis writing at the time he talks about the essence of a constitution is that it should be permanent and that nothing in there should be in any way ephemeral this should be where the governing laws of the state should be. And by writing a constitution and by ratifying a constitution, Ireland is setting itself apart from the United Kingdom because it's not going to have this unwritten constitutional basis. It's going to be okay, not a republic, basically it can't be a republic and this constitution had to be ratified by the UK Parliament, but ultimately this constitution marks it out as a state that is governed by a set of written laws and that radically departs from the, the British and, and by definition the Northern Irish precedents.
0: And it's interesting, I think it's great that there is an academic conference and I think there's a, an incredible lineup of experts for the two-day event. I don't know if it'll have much of a, a popular impact, but probably for the, the exact point you made that It doesn't have the resonance of of 1916 and the GPO and all of that story that this is a more maybe complicated one.
1: This probably has a bigger impact on people's lives in the 20s and 30s um, than any other one date in, in Irish independence. This is what sets all the other laws in train, what sets the institutions of the state it allows the, the real Irish civil service to start to form and has that transition between the British civil service and the Irish civil service and we'll have a, a paper on the, the conference on that we also see the origins of the judiciary coming out of this constitution so this has a huge formative effect but not all history is battles and treaties and uh, you know things that get signed or happen on a single day this is, is almost evolutionary uh, in terms of state formation and I think that's that's a nuanced point. It's one that is that little bit more difficult, maybe for uh, people to to not to grasp, but I suppose to mark because it is this this one date that culminates a huge state formation process. Um, and I suppose the other context behind this is the violence that encircles it. So we have a civil war that is raging at this time, but then in the immediate aftermath of the um, the Irish Free State being set up on the 6th of December, we have the assassination of Sean Hales the next day, uh, along with the, the wounding of Padraig O'Malley, the last Cancórla, and then the retaliatory execution of four Republican prisoners on the 8th of December. So violence is intermeshed with the foundation of the Irish state and we can't escape the the linkage of those two and I think one very much influences the other and vice versa. So the violence influences how the state is founded and then also state formation influences the the nature of that violence particularly in the days following that.
0: And Sean Hales was a TD and that was particularly shocking the fact that a a member of the Dáil would be be killed like that. And
1: leaving Dáil Éireann as well so this is a direct threat to the nascent democracy and I, I think that does explain it doesn't necessarily excuse um the the actions of the state after doing that, but it does explain the heavy-handedness of the reprisal execution policy of the uh, of the executive council after this that you know, they really are trying to stop violence with extreme violence. And this leads to, I would say one of the Nadirs ultimately surpassed by not Nanegosh and Ballyseedy but one of the nadirs of violence of the Irish Civil War
0: and Mary, I suppose it is impossible to separate the violence that's going on with the Civil war from this event. I looked at the newspapers the day after to see how uh, all of this was reported. And it was interesting, in the doll, everything was done in an hour. I suspect that if there wasn't a civil war going on and all of this violence, there probably would have been you know they would have made a huge day or a week of it, and there would have been you know big celebrations and it would have been a huge moment of state formation, as Connor is saying, but when it is in the shadow of violence and the direct influence of that violence I think it changes things an awful lot
2: absolutely um I think you know maybe that is a little bit of a silver lining of the violence in that we didn't get all these long speeches we now have to wade through. So the state has urgency in dealing, um, urgent matters to deal with, um, even if it is marking the formation of itself um, and the passing of the 1922 constitution. I just want to reflect a little bit on that 1922 constitution. Of course, it is the one that gives uh, equal voting rights to women that had been promised uh, throughout the War of Independence, that had been promised as part of the Proclamation of 1916. So some aspects, you can see those threads coming through that do come into the 1922 Constitution. That's one particular one. Although uh, it could have happened earlier for women and they were not allowed, uh, the, the, the state, the provisional government at the time, did not bring women in. Um, particularly women over the age of twenty one to vote in the general election because you know younger women were deemed suspect in terms of their loyalty to the state. Um, but you also have to remember, uh, not only was Sean Hales um, shot uh, a few days later, but at this particular moment in time, as the state was was congratulating itself and forming itself, you have Mary McSweeney uh, on hunger strike in Mountjoy. Uh, Mary McSweeney, of course, the, the sister of Terence McSweeney, who had, the mayor of Cork, who had died in Brixton Prison on hunger strike during the War of Independence, and her sister Annie McSweeney on hunger strike outside the gates. Uh, W.T. Cosgrave has no intention of inter- intervening in that hunger strike. So you here you have the resonances of the War of Independence, the McSweeney name, which is huge. Uh, and now you have a provisional, but now State government allowing uh, women, for example, perhaps to starve themselves to death in pursuant of their ideology, which was anti-treaty. So that violence is still going on. It's going on particularly in Kerry, obviously, um, in in December nineteen twenty two you're beginning to see the ratcheting up of the violence by um, the national Army there, and you begin you have a number of extrajudiciary killings. Uh, and that will go on into nineteen twenty three. And as Connor mentioned, the massacres at at by the anti-treaty IRA, then the reprisals at Ballyseedy and countess bridge and and elsewhere. So that violence is is um part of the state. It's intertwined with the birth of the state. But the state has also sees violence as a response. It has no problem. I mean, Cosgrave does say, uh, in, in one of his more, I suppose, extreme statements, and I'm paraphrasing here, that it doesn't matter how many they need to kill to protect the state, to keep the state going. Uh, so the anti-treaty IRA, although they have lost, they they really have lost the war at this stage. And, uh, they just haven't put their guns down. Uh, I mean, the, the city is in the control of the now government. Uh, the state has been formed. There is a constitution. The judiciary and the civil service are being formed. They are now running the state. And yet that extreme violence is continuing. And this is going to be problematic going in not only to 23, but I would argue on into the 20s and 30s, because you see uh, many continuing, uh, small though they may be, and in a minority though they may be, uh, to use violence to challenge the state. And of course, later on, you will have the assassination, for example, of a leading member of this state Kevin O'Higgins um, uh, and, and in many ways the arguments within the government as well, though we don't really know about them until later, uh, particularly when they're impacted by the behaviour, say, of the National Army, um, the, the, the discussions around the Kinmare case, for example, and the divisions between uh, Mulcahy and O'Higgins about the behaviour of the National Army. This is all going to impact in the next few years on the ability of the state to survive, it actually does uh, endure um, and I suppose that, that gives uh, credit to the members of the national, uh, of the government uh, that came into being, and the, the um, solidifying effect of having a constitution. I think it's a very important thing that we have this 1922 constitution. Uh, As Conor did mention, it is superseded by the 37 constitution. You could argue whether that was a good thing or not. But uh, because of the contents of the 37 constitution, particularly for women, were not very good. But the 1922 constitution gives a legitimacy to the state that helps it survive, even through this really, really violent and difficult period.
0: And Thomas, I suppose that's a good uh, justification for why we should talk about the 1922 constitution. But it does seem, given that it only lasted 15 years, it does seem strange that we would devote a lot of time to it, given that it didn't last and didn't survive.
3: No, that's true. But there are a few reasons why the 1922 Constitution is important. Uh, The first reason it's important is that so many of its provisions were actually reproduced, or you might even say recycled, in the succeeding 1937 Constitution. Uh, In addition, a lot of the institutions created by the 1922 Constitution are still with us today, albeit in somewhat reformed format. But I think the key thing is that you really can't separate the foundation of the state from the creation of the Constitution. The two are inextricably intertwined. And that's because, as far as Irish law, British law, and for that matter, international law is concerned, the state does come into existence on the 6th of December 1922, at the very moment the 1922 Constitution comes into force. So those two events, the foundation of the state... And the coming into force of the 1922 Constitution, you can't separate the two. But the third and final reason why the 1922 Constitution is important is because it meant a lot to people who lived and breathed in 1922 itself. I mean, some people were very much opposed to the Constitution, uh, very much disliked it. But for other people living in the middle of the Civil War, they see this as the beginning of the end, the light at the end of the tunnel, the uh, possibility of stability at last, you know, re-emerging after so many years of conflict. You've got to remember that the Civil War is just the latest of a long series of conflicts. And it, it gives people hope for not only a stable future, but for a state that can bring an element of prosperity that people are also uh, very much hankering for.
0: And Connor mentioned the the drafting committee and the role of Darrell Figgis. How difficult was it to draft the constitution? Did they look at what other countries had done and other constitutions to get ideas?
3: Yes, they did. They did. And of course, in 1922, there wasn't an internet, uh, so they had to write to foreign capitals, and they got their constitutions from foreign capitals in the native language, which then, of course, had to be translated. So they did a very positive thing. After, uh, in the process of drafting the constitution, they actually produced a book containing these uh, constitutions of the world, which uh, was used to draft uh, constitutions around the world, Uh, in the aftermath, including, by the way, the 1937 constitution.
0: And you've done an incredible work. You've been involved in this great project on looking at how people reacted to it and looking at newspapers in 1922. So have you been able to identify all of these different reactions from, from across the island?
3: Yes, yes. I mean, the reaction of uh, supporters of the treaty, I've already described, it's one of hope for stability and progress and so forth. For opponents of the treaty, this of course is a disaster. This is uh, the defeat of everything they hold dear. The Republic seems to be a long way out of reach at this stage. They reject the constitution. They call it a sham. They call it the constitution of the slave state, Churchill's constitution, a British imposed constitution, all sorts of... uh, unpleasant things like that. But the reaction goes beyond opponents and supporters of the treaty. Northern Unionists actually don't mind the constitution as a document. They, they certainly don't want it to apply to them, but they are sceptical. They're the one group that is sceptical that the constitution of 1922 will last. They're convinced that the 1922 constitution will quite rapidly be superseded and that the, the uh, free state will slide into a republic and they certainly want no part of it. As a document in itself, they don't mind it. There's a lot they like in it. The king is mentioned and so forth, the parliamentary oath, but it's not for them. They say, why should we join the seething cauldron? This is the words of the Belfast newsletter, the seething cauldron of the Irish Free State and go under the Southern Constitution.
0: And Connor, it really brings home the idea that commemorations aren't simple celebrations, that they're much more nuanced and complicated than that.
1: Yeah, and one of the things we want to do with this conference is not simply to mark a single date or a single event or a single document in terms of the constitution, but instead to project this forward and take this as an opportunity to look at how state formation occurred, not as an event, but as a process in the 1920s, 30s and even into the 1940s. So some of our panels look at the idea of sovereignty citizens in the state they look at the institutions of the state they look at law and order um, and they also look at, at I suppose the role that some of those institutions uh, welfare health the relationship with gender the relationship with the church housing the Irish language how these kind of things played into the state And there's one panel in particular that I think is important because it looks at three agents of stability that are outside of the state. Um, And that's on the Saturday conference, our our panel on agents of stability has a paper on the church-state relationship, a paper on the family and the Irish free state, and then a paper on land and radicalism. Um, So those three papers by Dahil Caron, Lindsay Erner-Byrne and Paul Rouse really will look at how not just the state, I suppose, brought through continuities and a form of conservatism, but also how those were rooted in non-state actors, but the, both the family and the church and then also the land-holding classes, how they provided stability, continuity, but ultimately a degree of conservatism into how the, the 20s and the 30s played out. So we can sometimes focus on the institutions of the state um, and look at, I suppose, government policy as as dictating the, the pace of things. But we have to look at the relationship between state and society here. Um, and it's really interesting to look at how the press, just like Tom has done with, with the uh, research on, on the newspapers and the, the Constitution, how the press, how business classes, how elites, how the church, how all of them interact with this new institution of the Irish state um, so you know we have a winding up of the Republic we have a winding up of the Dáil Courts by 1924 and there are heavy continuities between how both the uh, the legal system and the civil service transition across in this period some of that is mandated by how it's laid out in the treaty but other parts evolve in a more natural progression so the presence of a lot of UCD legal academics uh, on the benches of the uh, of the Supreme Court afterwards um, including James Mernon who's involved in this constitutional drafting and then becomes uh, a judge of the Irish Supreme Court. Something else which I think is important to to mark here is this is also the origin of Irish bicameralism. We have to remember that Dáil Éireann is a unic- unicameral chamber throughout the revolution and that puts it in, a, 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 I suppose, a small cohort of states. Uh, the Russian Duma and the Israeli Knesset, I think, are, are some of the few um, modern examples we have of, of unicameral systems. But the the origin of bicameralism comes out of this. There wasn't any mandate in the treaty that we had to have an upper house. Okay, it was proposed in the various Home Rule Bills going back to 1886. But the decision of uh, Irish men, and they are universally men in the Constitutional Committee, to make a bicameral state um, and uh, a bicameral legislature and to make sure that there is room, even within proportional representation, for minority groups. And really what we're looking at here is the loyalist minority that has been left within the borders of the 26th county um, and then also the religious Protestant minorities, uh, whether they be Anglican dissent or other uh, within the state. So, so the the bicameral system is seen as a safeguard against uh discrimination and and seen as a way in which uh, I suppose the state can represent all its citizens and and, you know while again it, it, it is superseded by another um Senate the role of Yates and others in the, the Free State Senate is really intrinsic to I suppose their commentary on the divorce um t- debate in the mid-1920s and things like this it's it's really important as to how that bicameralism evolves and I, I would tentatively argue that to a certain extent this does buttress um democracy and, and the way in which all views are represented in the Irish state.
0: So it wasn't just copying the British system that they had to two chambers, Ireland would have two chambers, there actually was a a good reason in terms of the Irish context why you would have a second chamber.
1: Quite different to a House of Lords or anything like that. Um, Yes, I think think it does ultimately have its roots in in the Home Rule Bills which do propose Senates or upper chambers at all points but the way in which bicameralism evolves in not a republic obviously but a system that is, I suppose, self-consciously democratic and doesn't have that role for an aristocracy in it, they still find a role for bicameralism in terms of minorities, which I think is significant.
0: Well, we're talking history and tonight we are talking about the centenary of the state coming into effect on the 6th of December 1922. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be continuing to explore the significance of 1922, its impact on Irish history and Irish society and indeed its legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the centenary of of the founding of the state on the 6th of December 1922 and it's based around this wonderful conference taking place in UCD on Friday the 2nd and Saturday the 3rd of December and it's open to the public admission is free of charge and if you want to reserve a spot uh, there are tickets available on Eventbrite as I say free and charge the Taoiseach Michal Martin is opening it on the Friday and a wonderful lineup of guests and you can get all of those details on the UCD website as well Our panel tonight Dr Conor Mulva one of the organisers of this conference and a lecturer in the School of History at UCD, Dr Mary McAuliffe, uh, Director of Gender Studies at UCD who's also speaking at the conference and Dr Thomas Moore who lectures in the UCD Sutherland School of Law and again also speaking at the conference. Mary, we were talking before the break about the Senate, the Shannon that was created and how it was good for uh, those from a unionist background, all these different backgrounds. Was it also good for women?
2: Yes, it was. It was a space in which women did have a platform the foundation of the state marks the end of, of ideas of equality for women within an imagined republic. Uh, and a lot of women, particularly political women, rejects this state because, of course, it and the constitution, it contains the oath of allegiance, which they had already rejected um, in, in February 1922 at meetings of Common and Amman. When the uh, Senate or Shannon is formed, um, three women are, are uh, put in by W.T. Cosgrave, and that's uh, Alice Stopford Green, uh, the Countess of Dessart and Jenny Wise Power. And they uh, contribute to debates on uh, the Divorce uh, Act that Connor mentioned, but also as we go on into 1920s, the rollback on equal rights, like the Juries Act in which women were, uh, you know, eventually basically taken off jury service, uh, the Conditions of Employment Act, the, the Marriage Bar um, the Civil Service Amendment Act, and the civil service is coming into being. And that's a really good thing. Uh, you, you know, you have an established civil service that is running the state in tandem with the the, the government system, but eventually uh, it becomes male civil service. And I think we're still living with that legacy today. If we talk about how important the foundation of the state is, we have to look at the legacies of that foundation, and the very gendered legacies of that foundation, and through the 20s and 30s, we end up with six women who serve as senators in the Free State Shannon, that de Valera eventually ended, but then he brings it back in under the 37 constitution. And they form a bloc. And it's interesting, uh, Kathleen Clark would have was one of those senators. She'd been vehemently anti-treaty, but the women come together in the Senate to resist the legislation and they make the the most amazing speeches uh, throughout the twenties and thirties, which you can see on IE and go through them, and talk about the promises of equality for women, and they go back again and again to that touchstone, the proclamation of independence, nineteen sixteen, and that promise of full and equal citizenship, and how that is not delivered. And I think uh, we are in this conference. Um, on the the, the panel I'm talking on, uh, where I talk about the afterlives of political women who are not now in the mainstream and won't be in the mainstream again until later in the late part, latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st. And we look at Mary uh, Professor Mary Daly is looking at no promised land, uh, health and welfare in the state, uh, and Dr. Joe Brady looking at the Dublin housing crisis of the 1920s. So there are resonances here. A hundred years later, you, we can, we're still talking about health and welfare. We're still talking about housing. We're still talking about gender equality. Uh, in our Irish Republic. Uh, So what was set in place in the 1920s have those legacies that we live with to this day and I think it's very important to reflect back on that. While we did get a state that became democratically secure and that changeover happened in 1932, there could have been a coup. There could have been more violence. Uh, The state mightn't have survived and many post-colonial states don't survive in the way that we actually, luckily, did. Uh, But... It was not all rosy in the garden, and particularly for the working class, for the for for um, laborers, for women, uh, for those outside the political mainstream. Dare I say it, the male political mainstream, um, who who the state uh, privileged over everybody else. And I I think we have to remember that that the inadequacies of that state are, are that continue to be the inadequacies of the state we have today where they are already in the 1920s uh, and to remember those legacies.
0: And you mentioned divorce there. I know that divorce was banned in the 1937 constitution, but mm-hmm.
2: what was its position
0: from 1922 on? It doesn't seem to have been allowed. And then, of course, there is Yeats's famous speech where he wants, uh, in in the, in the Shannon, where he wants uh, more toleration and more respect for minority different views. But it was still conservative when it came to issues like that?
2: Oh, very much conservative. Uh, I mean, the, the discussion on divorce is what is happening during the Irish Civil War, you would think they had much more to be dealing with than talking about divorce in the middle of a, a violent civil war that's going on. And a divorce had existed under the British system, but it was just for the minority. It was hugely expensive, very adversarial. Um, and so it was just, uh, you know, you had lots of very juicy scandals about aristocracy, members of the aristocracy getting divorced and, and they made great tabloid newspaper uh, material uh, so it was never uh, something that was uh, there for ordinary people, but it, again it was something that the the state um, looks at uh, you then begin to see the state looking at the position of women, the position of the working class. what you're beginning to see is the formation of a very moralizing state and of course that comes from that partnership with the church and it becomes to be it becomes that state that continues to moralize you begin to see the uh, funding of the institutions like the Mother and Baby Homes and the Magdalen Laundries and the residential school, the industrial schools, that becomes part of the arms of the state as well. While we can commemorate, and again it shows how commemoration is so complicated, we commemorate, yes, we should commemorate the foundation of the state, the state that we now live in, that continues to exist, uh, but we also have to acknowledge that it came with a huge baggage and created a lot of issues and a lot of problems for um, certain sections of its own society as well. And that commemoration, which we are doing at this conference in UCD, brings with it all those nuances and complications. And I think we, you know, looking at it in that way, we can understand how we came from there to here over the course of the the, the last hundred years.
0: Thomas, I'm interested in the events itself on the 6th of December 1922. I wonder, was there much of a reaction
3: in Dublin and the rest of the country? Well, the first thing you would have noticed if you'd been alive on the 6th of December 1922 was huge queues outside all of the post office. There were queues of people who were curious to see the new stamps of the new state, and the stamps that they got at the end of their queuing were, I mean, said a lot about the new state. Green stamps showing the entire island of Ireland, all in the Irish language. King George V is nowhere to be seen, conspicuous by his absence. You would have also have seen new tricolour flags appearing over all uh, public uh, buildings. Um, most of the post boxes would have been painted green at this stage, but not all. That was a gradual process. Uh, the newspapers at the time, of course, greet the state the birth of the state with uh, ecstatic editorials that are quite interesting because not only do those editorials re- reflect on the Irish past, they also reflect on the future that they hope uh, is going to, uh, you know be before the state. Uh, You see hopes for, for example, an Irish-speaking society, a model Christian state. Uh, You get, um, rather interestingly, hopes for the reforestation of the country. That's surprisingly common. But most of all, you have hopes for a robust democracy and a prosperous future for the Irish state. You also see the formal opening of the Oireachtas. It is technically a bicameral uh, parliament, but the Shannad hasn't been fully elected at this stage, so it's only the Dáil that meets on the sixth of December, nineteen twenty-two. W. T. Cosgrave, as president of the Executive Council, gives quite a stirring speech, trying to a plea for Irish unity, trying to, to encourage Northern Ireland to come in uh, with the Free State doesn't succeed, obviously. Telegrams come in from foreign capitals from all over the world recognizing the new state and congratulating it, uh, including from London. Uh, Most important of all, getting that recognition of of Irish statehood is quite significant. There are celebrations in parts of the country. The state doesn't organize anything big, um, but there are privately organized celebrations in different parts of the country, bonfires, parades, and things like that. But in Dublin itself, the situation is quite tense because of the Civil War. Um, All trains going into the capital on the 6th of December 1922 are searched. There is a security cordon in the city centre. And the reason for that is that there were persistent rumours of uh, an anti-treaty attack to coincide with the 6th of December. Now, it didn't happen. It happened on the 7th of December instead, when all the security apparatus had been removed. And, of course, the state responds by executing four uh, anti-treaty prisoners in Mountjoy Prison without trial, which, I say this is a legal academic, was an utterly illegal act and a breach of the constitution after just over one day in existence. The constitution is violated already. A disaster.
0: And it's interesting what you mentioned about Northern Ireland. Is, is my understanding correct that Northern Ireland was included as part of this new state, but they were able to opt out if they wanted. And the very next day on the 7th of December, they did choose to opt out.
3: Now, that is something that is quite controversial and historians are divided on that. What was the status of Northern Ireland between the 6th and the 7th of December 1922? I should explain the context behind this. Under the terms of the treaty, the Parliament of Northern Ireland, which had been created by the Government of Ireland Act 1920, was given a period of one month after the 6th of December 1922, to choose whether it was going to opt for the Irish Free State and its constitution or the United Kingdom and the Government of Ireland Act 1920. As events transpired, they didn't require a month. It was called the Ulster Month. They required merely one day uh, before they made their decision. And no surprise, they chose the United Kingdom. And nobody was surprised by that decision. In fact, if Northern Ireland coming in had been a real prospect The 1922 constitution would have had to have been drafted quite differently to take that into account, to take into account a possible federal uh, union or some kind of subordinate parliament coming in. So the mere fact that the provisions on unification, they're there in Article 44 of the constitution, which says that the state may create subordinate parliaments, but it's also vague and so lacking in detail that the expectation Uh, of what decision would be made is quite obvious from the start. And
0: you say it's controversial for historians. Why is that? Because is it because there's there's not agreement on whether for that one day Ireland was a a 32-county free state or is it that there's that ambiguity about whether Northern Ireland is opting in to the free state or opting out of it?
3: The terms of the 1921 Treaty are actually quite ambiguous on this point and I would argue deliberately so. But there is an obvious, uh, shall we say, matter of pride involved here on whether Northern Ireland, even, even for a moment, left the United Kingdom. Or, on the other hand, whether Ireland was united, even just for one day. Nationalist newspapers in Northern Ireland are very clear on this. The Irish News says, for today, Ireland is a free state from Cape Clear to Fairhead in uh, County Antrim. But, as I say, not all historians, I think, would accept
0: that. So we have Schrodinger's Northern Ireland. It <laughs> yes. was both simultaneously yes. part of the United Kingdom and part of the yes. Free State for a single a single day. Okay, that is that is fascinating as well. And, Connor, it's wonderful that the way the conference is bringing together all of these different points of view and perspectives, uh, it's giving you a sense of just how complex and just how nuanced Irish history is, and how how nuanced it was a hundred years ago.
1: Yeah, we we always said that this phase of the commemorations would be complex uh, to a certain extent. They were to be controversial, but I think the main thing here is that we embrace that complexity. And you know, in, in other commemorations, you know, particularly commemorations of the First World War, we've sometimes seen other commemorations move towards maybe a degree of, of jingoism or nationalism, but really what we're looking at here is to mark a moment in history. That, you know, the difference between commemoration and celebration. This isn't, you know, a military parade to celebrate the the foundation of the Irish Free State. It's an academic conference to look at the results, the causative effects of this event and what it, it meant for the evolution of Irish democracy for the relationship between state and its people, the external relations of the Irish state, whether that be with Northern Ireland. And we have to remember here under Article 12 of the treaty, this is an island where the borders of it are in flux up until 1925 when the Boundary Commission collapses.
0: We'll take a quick break now and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History and tonight we are debating the events of 100 years ago when the Irish Free State came into existence. My panel of experts, Dr Conor Mulva, uh, Dr Mary McAuliffe and Dr Thomas Moore and it is of course based around this wonderful conference taking place this Friday and Saturday the 2nd and 3rd of December in UCD and if you want any information about it just go to their website centenaries.ucd.ie it'll give you information on all of the papers you can also watch it online Um, Thomas can I ask you a question about this idea of a genuinely free state or a failed state because we could have representatives from you know different spectrums of Irish politics here and you could have someone on one extreme saying this was a failed state you know it's a legacy of you know all of the problems that Mary was mentioned Earlier, And, you know, more problems in terms of uh, the way women were treated, minorities were treated, problems in housing, all of these difficulties. But then you might have someone on the other extreme who might say, this was 100 years of achievement. This is a great state. This is a country we should be proud of. This is Ireland. You know, you're not being patriotic if you're not supporting it.
3: Where do we fall in, in that? I mean, it's it's like you say, a question of perspective. I mean, one thing that's clear from again, I hark back to the editorials in 1922, and they're they're focusing on what they hope the future will be. I mean, one expectation uh, that is almost taken for granted, but is at the same time a, a point of considerable pride, is that the state will be and will remain. Uh, a robust democracy. And of course that, I mean, yes, there is the famous transition to power in 1932. That is an expectation that, uh, I mean, the state is a success in that area. I mean, where it fails uh, is when you read the hopes for a prosperous future, uh, the hopes for, uh, you know, an economic golden age. I mean, few would describe the 1930s, uh, 1920s, 1930s as an economic golden age in Ireland. It's very sad, actually, to read those editorials talking about their hopes of the future. And it's worth reflecting, of course, that when people in the 1920s speak of prosperity, they're not talking about, you know, owning a fancy house, car, exotic holidays. They're talking about a future where they don't have to witness their children immigrating. And the very sad truth is that very few people alive in 1922 are going to see such a future.
0: Mary, it's one of these questions that really depends on almost who's asking the question. So I suppose we, we as historians tend to see it both ways.
2: Well, that's the great thing about conferences like these. We look at it in, from those complications. Um, it didn't fail as a state. It's still here. So that, that would say it, it is not a failed state. But it failed a lot of communities and groups and populations within that state for a long time and there are still it is still still groups there it is still failing. Um, and we also have to look at it was a very poor state. Uh, no post-colonial state is going to have a very full pockets to to be spending money but it also delivered despite the fact that economically it was it was on very shaky ground it delivered on housing it delivered some big uh, projects. Uh, from the beginning, and you have to wonder, you know, how they managed to do that 100 years ago, and perhaps the state today isn't doing that now. Um, there were some really talented people involved in in the governing and running of the state, and they made decisions that we may disagree with or agree with, uh, but they made them, they took those decisions and they, they, they stayed the course. You know, as a gender historian, I would say it was a state that delivered a, a very... Oppressive conservatism, uh, uh, an ideology of respectability that blighted the lives of many women and and girls through the coming, the the ensuing decades down to the later 20th century. But I also see it as, as somebody who is now an Irish citizen within a state that is that state's legacy. Um, that it it continued to exist. That was a huge uh, win for it uh, in, in terms of being a a state that had come out of empire, come out of uh, um, being being constructed and having a division on the island. You know, in 1922 the violence on the border was extreme. Um, there was you know, and and that continues until the autumn of 1922, and yet it didn't devolve into outright warfare between the two. States that were now on the island of Ireland uh, or into 1923. Uh, in itself, when we turned in on ourselves, yes, the state committed acts of illegality with the executions, which is breathtaking to think that they actually broke their own constitution within a day or two of it coming into being. Uh, and yet at the same time, those things happened and the state survived. So those complications are what we'll tease out in this conference. And I think this conference and others that have happened reflect uh, the successful part of this decade of centenaries, that we've teased out the complications of our revolutionary period and now into our state formation period. And that's no bad thing at all.
0: Conor, it almost seems like a century ago that we've embarked on this process of commemorating the events of the revolutionary decade. I think there were doubts at the start about how the state would uh, commemorate these and how different institutions uh, would remember them. Uh, there was nervousness maybe in the lead up to 1916, but I think looking back on it, I think it has been handled successfully.
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting decade and, and I do think that the the focus on both making commemorations accessible to everyone, to decentralising commemoration, that local communities have been able to commemorate diverse and often opposing centenaries, Um, you know, that the state has embraced its pro and anti-treaty centenaries, that it's embraced unionist centenaries, First World War centenaries, as well as the centenaries that I, I suppose we see in the standard nationalist canon of four glorious years and, and what might have been a much more simplistic commemoration in 1966, for instance. So that inclusivity, that diversity of commemoration and then the academic inquiry where, you know, I think there has been... Uh, and I'm not sure unprecedented, but certainly a really welcome fusion of public discourse and academic discourse on this, looking at. The Irish language and its role in state formation, how Irish language communities um, existed at the time of the foundation of the state. So I really do hope that there's going to be something for everyone in this conference, and that it will spark that complexity of debate. You know, we're not here certainly to celebrate the foundation of the Irish state. We're here to mark it and commemorate it and investigate it, and they're the kind of touchstones of what we want to do with this conference. And we really hope that you know the, the. wonderful public audience that we've seen emerge over the past 10 years and more um, in engaging with Centennial content, engaging with the digitised uh, archives which have become a huge public resource and there's a big difference between how Ireland has digitised its resources in a public and open accessible fashion versus how it's been done in the UK and elsewhere which I think is hugely welcome. Um, so so all of those things I really hope will kind of culminate and come together in this conference as a, a real debate and uh, I suppose uh, an inquiry of all these events um, that we're going to have in UCD.
0: Okay well it is taking place this Friday and Saturday the 2nd and 3rd of December just go to their website centenaries.ucd.ie and you'll get all the information and I think of course because a lot of people listen to this as a podcast weeks and months later so uh, even if it is after the conference when you're listening to it go to their website anyway and they may have videos up and some uh, extracts from the papers and lots of information about it so still well worth going to their website centenaries.ucd.ie Well my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts tonight Dr Connor Mulva one of the organisers of this conference Dr Mary McAuliffe and Dr Thomas Moore and that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to my producer Marisa Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound we've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then we've been Talking History Good night.